evening, everybody. I hope you have your handouts, and then we are going to be walking through all of Titus chapter 2 tonight, the 15 verses there. And uh, so we're getting near the end of our study. It's taken us uh, an entire year, uh, although, you know, our schedules are a little bit different. It's about 13 weeks in the fall, 13 weeks in the spring, um, to walk through First and Second Timothy and then Titus as well. Um, so if this is your first time here, uh, uh, we're glad that you're here, and I promise you that even if it's your first time, there's going to be something for you to learn tonight. Uh, the part that I love about the Bible is that it seems like no matter when I pick it up, no matter what, uh, kind of what situations I'm in, it still speaks rather clearly to me of God's love and God's plan, and so uh, tonight we're going to be looking at um, Paul's letter to Titus. It would be probably the second last letter he writes. He is reminding Titus of what needs to happen in a particular, uh, he's left him uh, on the island of Crete uh, where he wants him to set things in order. And uh, I had someone ask me just the other day, I uh, finished teaching our Tuesday Bible study class. We've got Bible study classes happen all the time around here, it seems like. So just finished teaching the book of Hebrews, which was a wonderful, wonderful study. And when I was done, the, 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 the teacher that I share this time with, she looked at me, and it might have been uh, from the, the ending of Hebrews chapter 13, basically makes a statement to the, to the church. It says, uh, make sure that you pray for your leaders, make sure that you submit to them and that you love them and that you care for them. And so we spent some time discussing that, and then when it was done, she asked me the question. She said, listen, um, if, if I could ask you, and tell me the truth, what is it that is uh, the most difficult aspect of being a leader in ministry? And I, I guess there's a number of things that I think she was even thinking through. I kind of wanted to know, well, what do you think it is, you know? Well, is it like people who complain? Because people do that. I don't know if you've heard, but uh, it's, it's, a, it's a universal condition where we, not you guys, where we have this tendency to complain. We do. I, it's interesting, the Hebrew word um, uh, for murmur kind of makes that sound. Uh, so whenever you read about it in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is kind of like, because that's what, exactly what it sounds like. It's what they're doing. They did it to Moses. Um, it's just a constant thing. Is it complaining? And I had to, no, I don't think it's that. I don't know where I would ever go to get away from that. So I don't think it's that. Um, so would it be like problems that just never really change? Uh, people have the same problems over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And I've had people a number of times say to me, I just feel terrible that I'm here again. And that you're taking, they always say this, you're taking time away from your family. Uh, you're taking time away from, I mean, I, I never say that to my plumber when he shows up at my house. Hey, I'm sorry to bug you. So I'm, I know you're taking time away from me. I don't say it to anybody else, but I, I get it all the time from people. Really, really sorry. I mean, I've got, I've got all these problems, and now I'm taking time away from your family, and I'm doing all of these, these things, and I just feel terrible. And, and by the way, it is true. <laughs> it does take many times time away from my family. It does happen. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but our problems in life happen at the most inopportune times. And I do. I get those apologies, those really, and I believe they're heartfelt. Well, if I just had my life together, maybe uh, your life wouldn't be so hard. And I've had a number of people tell me that over the years. And it was actually easy for me to say no. Like, it's, that's actually not a problem at all. And I began to kind of put these things together. 
And um, I was making a little bit of a realization that I'm sure I'm going to be talking about for a while because it was like God was kind of speaking to me near the end of this class. And I said, actually, the most difficult part of ministry is me. And before I just sound real deep, let me explain what I, let me explain that. The most difficult part of ministry is managing my own expectations of us and not wanting to get overly frustrated or quit or whatever. Because I know in my mind that it's hard. And I know in my mind that we all, I, go through the same struggles over and over and over again. Mine aren't as costly as many other people's, but I know what it's like. I know what it's like to stand before God and go, why am I still this way? Anybody else? And I just said, that's the hardest thing, actually. The hardest thing of ministry is not being um, overwhelmed or discouraged in the midst of it. And I, I guess I know enough about the universal plan of God that I really don't have anyone else to blame but me. <laughs> Because God made it very, very clear that this is the way it was going to be. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God made it very, very clear in terms of what this is going to look like. I fell in love with the word from 2 Timothy, um, where Timothy was talking about what an, the way an elder should be. And he uses this very, it's a hapax legomena, meaning it's only found once in the entire Bible. But it is describing this, this person who has an ability to stand under all this incredible weight and accusations, all of these problems, and they do so with grace. And I just I love that word. Um, and I just think, so the problem really isn't everybody acting like everybody acts, because that's just to be expected, right? But how do I handle that? How do I walk through that? How do I navigate through that? And then I have to just stop and remind myself, my dad was so good for me in this because when I would talk about ministry, my dad would always remind me, we're all in ministry. What do you mean you're in ministry? We're all in ministry. So, uh, and I'm grateful for that, actually. My dad was, a, most people think he was a pastor. He's not. He's a military man. But he understood that his whole life was about ministry. And I grew up in a church where um, the preachers and the teachers and the pastors, it was so small, it was just, couldn't tell the difference between staff and not staff. That's what happens when the church is like 12 people in it. You know, you don't have like a youth pastor. You just call her mom, you know. And uh, it's a good reminder because that's what we're going to hit in here. What we're, what we're dealing with in chapter 2, they're known as household sections. Where the Apostle Paul is going to give some specific instructions to the households. But it's, it's good for us to remember that as he does this, he does it recognizing that the church itself is known as a household. We are the household of faith. And within that household, what we're actually going to have is that we're going to have fathers and we're going to have mothers. We're going to have husbands and wives. We're going to have um, the old, which I'm just going to say it again. That is so not a bad word. I want, for the record, I've been saying that since I was in my 20s, okay? I'm not just saying that as I get older. I've been always, I've always it drives me crazy when people get all weird about the word old. Um, it's not a bad word at all. It's a beautiful word. Young. There's, yeah, there's old and then there's young. So the household section really describes this idea of young and old and men and women. 
This is what constitutes the household. And the question becomes, so how do we act? How should we act? Essentially believing this, that our faith has a profound impact on these two things, what we do, and at the same time, who we are. So there is a, who are we? So that's a more of our identity, understanding some of that stuff. And our identity then shapes our actions more than we realize. But our actions also have a correlating fact here. I mean, I've always, I've always wrestled, are we supposed to do things or are we supposed to be things? And again, the beautiful answer of the Bible is what? Yes. And the two are so, so, so intimately connected. And this is what I love about this book is it just holds them together in unison and it is a, a, a picture of faith. That's why what you're going to see in this text over and over and over again is the concept of sound. And another word for that, that, that Greek word is, um, is, 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 is healthy. Sound or healthy faith then brings as a result of that sound or healthy faith, it brings a sound or healthy person who is then leaving, not in, an, uh, not in a contradictory way to what they say, but actually like a uniform way. And that's the way the Christian life is supposed to be lived, is that we say these things that we believe, we hold on to this faith, and then our lives mirror that. And whenever it doesn't, that's when we have problems. That's when there is um, some kind of a, a, a break in our, in our thinking. That's where concepts or accusations like hypocrisy become not only just a difficult word to hear, um, but true. It is true. You say that and you act like that. By the way, which is, is really interesting in the, in the book of Hebrews as well as in this book, a number of times um, the, the, the biblical writers ask you to do this. They will say, I want you to just reason, like think about this. Think about, consider this. I want you to consider what Jesus Christ has done for you. I want you to consider the fact that one day you'll stand before God. And as you consider this fact that you will stand before God, or as you consider the fact that Jesus Christ died for you, now all I want you to do is to let your life naturally flow from what you now believe, that you will stand before God. So I love to point this out to my kids. Like you, you don't, I did this on Sunday, like you don't make those decisions considering that you're going to get in trouble. It's actually a disconnect. If you were knowing, if you were at the moment thinking through this, you wouldn't have acted like that. Somehow there was like a, a break. And that's what Paul is, 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 is calling Timothy towards. Paul is calling Timothy towards this in the city of Ephesus. Paul is calling Titus towards this in the city of Crete. That's why he'll say things, and if you even look at the very beginning, he's described at the end of chapter 1 what elders are to be like, because it's difficult times. And then he begins to talk about Timothy. Okay, here's what the elders are going to be doing. The elders are going to be teaching, and the elders are going to have this kind of reputation. And then he begins and continues on. But as for you... Titus, teach, that's the imperative. It's, it's actually not a complicated, there's a, there's a the kind of much deeper term for teach, didasko in the Greek. This is actually just a word that is most often translated say or speak, laleo. So it's kind of a simple word. 
which I find it very interesting. It's all through this text, and they never translate it say. It's always command, declare, teach. And so it's, it's, it's good for us to remember, and here's kind of one of the lessons I just take off of that one word, um, that like what we say to one another about how we live our lives is probably more teaching-oriented than any of us want to admit. My wife loves to say to me, oh, it sounds like you're going to preach to me again. Right? Well, honey, no, I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just wanting to tell you something that you should do because if you don't do it, you're, sounds like a sermon, doesn't it? Which I just think it's probably good for us to just embrace it. Like the, the words that we use to our children, the words that we use even with one another, have a far deeper teaching effect than we realize. And so that's what he says right here. I mean, to, to say these things to these people over and over and over again, like it matters. It's, it's not just, that's why I want to be a little bit careful talking about, well, I, you know, I'm not a teacher, I'm just a regular Joe. And then I, I listen to these regular Joe or Joannes communicate on Facebook or whatever, and they're preaching almost all the time. Preaching a gospel of not being judgmental, preaching a gospel of you name it. They are preaching. You can try to pretend you're not, but no, the, the enthusiasm that you have, the determination that you have, oh no, you're preaching. We're all preaching in that sense. And so the real question gets to kind of come to the really to the center of this is like what message are you preaching? Like what message are you communicating to those people around you? And the one that Paul tells Titus to communicate, look at what he says here. But Titus says for you, I want you to speak or to teach what is in what accords again the word there could be translated to what is consistent with sound doctrine or healthy doctrine. So the Bible teaches that there are bad ideas and there are good ideas. There is a distortion of the truth and there is the truth. There are views of God that are wrong and there are views of God that are right. There are views of God about Jesus that are wrong and there are views about Jesus that are right. There are views about us as humans that are wrong and then there are views about us as humans that are right. And these views then shape our understanding of ourselves, and then that shapes the behavior that we do, which then also then shapes how we see ourselves, and it becomes this vicious cycle over and over and over again. All of the great studies in psychology and sociology, really, philosophy, theology, all of these things are answering these fundamental questions. And what Paul is actually saying is, make sure that what you're speaking is consistent with healthy doctrine or healthy truths that we know from the scriptures. So in essence, in very short thing, Paul's reminding Titus, I want you to be intentional and careful and very specific that what you teach is consistent or accords with what God wants. And I, I don't, I think it, we're, we're too quick to just make statements. I mean, probably I'm the war chief of sinners on this one. Too quick to make statements or bold assertions without stopping and going, like, is that true biblically? So we, we, we got all these, uh, I did a, kind of shared with the staff this past week, all these amazing cliches that we will hold on to. And uh, this, this, this writer wrote this blog, and he was describing some, some statements that need to be just getting, gotten rid of. They need to be just expelled from the Christian vocabulary because they teach wrong ideas that cause people to have wrong ideas about God. 
One of them was when God closes a door, he opens a window. How many of you have heard this? Yeah, like that's not true. And if you want to know where the Bible actually says, that's a bad idea. It doesn't open doors and close windows. I, my, my statement, which you've probably heard me say before, is if God has closed a door, the biblical precedent, not all the time, but the biblical precedent is buckle up because he's about to push you through the keyhole. That's what it feels like when God closes doors. Ask the prophets. God doesn't close doors and open windows. No, he usually closes doors and pushes us through and we make it through and we're scraped and it's kind of rough. And by the time we're done, we're like, wow, that was actually harder and better than I thought it was gonna be. That's the biblical picture, actually. Um, the safest place in the world is in the center of the will of God. Have you heard this? The safe, now, if you begin to just, you know, define everything, define safe and define center so that in the end you still get your little uh, kind of weird world. That's not the point is. The point is I've heard people say this. I hear people always try to encourage me, hey, that if you're doing the right thing, there'll only be peace. There'll only be peace. And I love to remind them, you do know like the major story that I want to compare my life to is my Savior being nailed on a cross. Just so, just so we understand how the narrative ultimately works for me. And that, by the way, is a good thing. So just, we have all these cliches. Let go and let God. What do these things mean? And, and I love what, what, what uh, Titus is being challenged to do. He's not just, hey, say things that will make people feel better about themselves. If you could come up with some real good tweets, that'd be awesome. No, what he's saying is, I want you to think about who God is. I want you to think strongly about um, what our faith is and what our faith means. I want you to remember what the prophets taught. I want you to remember what I taught you. And I want you to stay consistent with that. And, and here's one of the things I'm getting more and more aware of is that what is so popular in our day and age is not that which is consistent, but that which is novel, right? We're looking for new and creative and amazing things. And the Bible actually does the exact opposite. The Bible actually says, first of all, there's nothing new under the sun. And then, by the way, anything that we try to make that actually sounds new is just a distortion of that which is already old. And that which is true gets a kind of a slant on it so that we go, wow, isn't that amazing how that works? And God says, it's just, difficulty with this is just false. It's just wrong. And so what, I, what Titus is doing here is, is, is speaking same doctrine. I'm going to tell you what you already know. I'm going to tell you what you already know. That's one of the more difficult aspects of preaching is saying things over and over and over again that everybody already knows that we just need to be reminded of. Now he moves to Medland, and he starts with older men. Notice how this begins. And if you want, you can look back at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 through 16, where he does very something very similar to this, kind of segmenting the people and saying, here's what they need to hear. And by the way, before you get upset and begin to count, and why did he say this to men? Why did he say this to women? Why did he, here's one thing I like to remind myself. How many of you know the people here in Crete? Raise your hand. How many of you knew them by name? Any of you? Yeah, me neither. I don't know them either, so it's not like I know them and you don't. How many of you know, like, like firsthand, because that's what would matter the most, the situation that's going on in Crete? Raise your hand if you know. Not some theological postulate. I'm talking about how many of you know firsthand what was going on and what these people were like? Anybody know? Nobody knows? Oh, okay. 
then I got an idea. Why don't we do this? I know this is going to sound crazy. Why don't we trust the word of God and the Apostle Paul to know what he's talking about to them? Isn't that sound nuts? I think it's a beautiful thing, actually. It's amazing how we, we, we jump too soon into it. and We kind of get defensive one way or the other. What he's saying to them, what he's saying to this. I mean, do, do you think he understands? Yes. Do you think he's being guided by the Holy Spirit? Yes. So let's learn what he has to say to them. And here's what he says. Older, older men are to be sober-minded. And, and notice the list of these things. I'm not, I've already defined most of these back in the Timothy material, so for the sake of getting through all the material tonight, I'm just going to kind of read the list, and I want you to kind of catch the weight. That's why I've underlined it all in green, to catch the weight of everything. Because so often these lists, when I want to break them down, fruit of the Spirit, love, explain it, joy, explain it, Peace, explain it, right? You kind of walk through and you list them all and you're, you're, you're kind of explaining each of them. But what I fail to recognize sometimes is that it's the fruit, not fruits, it is the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's almost like it needs to be hyphenated, right? The fruit, singular, of the Holy Spirit is a love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control kind of a life. And we want to break it down. And then we kind of rate ourselves, you know, one through five on how we're doing on each of those. And then kind of pat ourselves on the back for the couple of fives that we have because we think we're pretty loving or we think we're pretty kind or pretty gentle. But really what the, what, what the Holy Spirit is doing is a, is a holistic transformation of me. And I love what C.S. Lewis describes as a solidarity of virtue that exists. So sometimes preachers do a disservice by just defining each of the words and we fail to see that what Paul is trying to do or what the biblical writer is trying to do is say, no, this is what I'm talking about. The person looks like all of this. Not just parts of this, but they look like all of this. And this is what he wants older men to look like. Sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, here's that word again, sound in faith. And, and that probably there, that word there, um, when it becomes a noun like that, it's kind of describing like sound in their belief, in the, in the fullness of their belief about God and themselves, so uh, of the faith. So sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Like this is what older men need to be. Which can just put to rest this idea because I, I remember one time there was, a, there was a great book that I read that described this and it was a book, it was called The Life You've Always Wanted um, and it was describing the lack of spiritual growth that still exists in the church and I read it when I was younger when I was uh, really um, eager and optimistic about ministry, now I'm older and still eager and optimistic about ministry none of that has changed um, but he was describing in this book a gentleman I think that had gone to his church and uh, this, this, this older gentleman, I guess, was kind of a, uh, kind of a cantankerous, kind of, a, kind of an angry, kind of a short, um, kind of a frowning kind of a guy. And, and John Ortberg, who wrote the book, goes on to describe this, this gentleman in this church. And, and this is what the church folks said. Ah, that's just, that's just, I think his name was Frank, which is my father's name. Um, they basically just said this. Ah, that's just Frank. That's just Frank. That's who he is. That's just Frank. He's just kind of angry. He's kind of short with people. He's kind of mean. You know, he's, he's, a, he's a Christ follower, but he's just really kind of a mean, short, 
angry, not in height, but just short-tempered, kind of an angry guy. Well, how long has he been a Christian? I think he was saved when he was like five, invited Jesus into his heart. And then, like, how old is he now? 85? And he's been hating people ever since. And John asked the question, like, why isn't anybody saying something about this? It's, it's, you've probably heard me say this lately, I get on these kicks, don't you? Have any guys tell I get on kicks? I do, I get on kicks. And a kick that I've gotten on lately, and it was a personal conviction, was I cannot use as some kind of um, agreeable defense, that you know, I want to kind of win you over to this, like I can use, it's my personality as a way to not submit to uh, breaking a, a part of my a life or my personality and saying I got to repent of it and I got to change. That's just Jim. Look at what he says here. I mean, I look at this list and I, I have to wonder, like, can this be said of you? And we look at this. I mean, I, I, I love the list. Sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. By the way, nowhere does it say you have to be perfect. It doesn't have to say that you never have a temptation or that you never have a failure. But this, this whole long list of things constitute what an older man should look like. So that, by the way, then younger men say, man, I like who you are. I like the way you've lived your life. I love the way. I mean, how many of you would just love to look up to older men like this? How many of you look? How many of you do? I do. I look up to older men that I know that are like this. I look up to them. And Paul is telling Titus, and I love this, like this is what I want you to teach old men to be. Which it never ends. I love that. It doesn't matter if I'm teaching in the prime timers class or in the church builders class. Um, and it's not because I know all. I don't know it all. But I have the word of God and the word of God says this is what older men need to be like. I remember one of the most difficult moments that I ever had, I went home a couple of years ago to do one of my niece's weddings, and I'm sitting in my living room, I'm a little nervous about my parents hearing this, but um, maybe, maybe we'll just delete this tape, Steve, or some block it from Canada or something, but I sat down with my mom and my dad, and you know how much I love my mom and dad, right? I talk about them all the time, ad nauseum, right? Um, but I just felt like, you know, wedding time, just married this one girl, and we've had marital issues in our Kind of in our overall family, there's been difficulties. My brother made some serious mistakes in his life. And there's, you know, we're, we're family. We're a normal, normal Christ-following family that's had some real marital difficulties. And I decided at that moment, with as much tender compassion as I could, to kind of let my mom and dad know that although they're 82 and 84 at the time or whatever they were, that they could have been better husbands and wives with each other. That was at 10 o'clock at night. Because, you know, it's about time to go to bed, so nothing better to bring up than, you know, Dad, I think you could have been a better husband to Mom. And uh, 3.30 in the morning rolls around, and I'm thinking, we should probably put an end to this. And it went through the whole ups and downs of it all. And I wasn't, I truly wasn't. I wasn't trying to say, hey, Mom and Dad, like, this is where you failed and I haven't. I actually spent a lot of time going, um, man, I love you guys. I, I so do. And there's so many aspects of your life that I admire. I'm just thinking about, I mean, you're going to see Jesus pretty soon. There are some things in the Bible that I just want to say to you. And just kind of looking back at this angle, I just really think maybe you, you need to hear this. <laughs> wow, it got weird. And in that moment, I guess I was beginning to think it's just hard isn't it? 
it's just hard to speak the truth to moms and dads. It's hard to speak the truth. And I'll just say this, it's hard to speak the truth to anybody. Like in that moment, I remember thinking, like even when I started telling the story, how many of you were going, okay, good luck with this? But I mean, where is it ever, where is it ever easy? You think I walk up to some gentleman here at this church who's 80 years old and I tell him, hey, like I, I really think you need to change your behavior. You're not sober-minded. You're not dignified. You think they're gonna go, man, thank you so much for telling me that because you're not my son. <laughs> no, who do you think you are to tell me that? Oh, because you're the pastor and they'll find all these, we all do, we'll all find excuses to avoid it. This is, this is what I love about this text is like this text applies to me and I am simultaneously, I am both Titus and the older man that needs to hear this. So right now, speaking to you men, you need to hear this. If you're young, then you need to grow up and be like this. And if you're old and you can still fog a mirror, then you need to, by the, by the Holy Spirit's conviction and by the Holy Spirit's strength, you need to become like this. Like the ministry and the mission of the church both requires and demands it simultaneously. And the Spirit will sustain it. So if Titus hasn't caused a problem or Paul causing a problem for Titus, he thought, well, let's, let's make this easier. Verse three, older women... <laughs> Again, let's not get crazy about the word old, but older women, which, by, by the way, people didn't live back then as long as, as they do today. And so you have to kind of dial everything back in terms of most likely age groups that they're talking to, okay? Heard a lot of different speculation. These would be people in their mid-40s. These would be people in their mid-50s. Um, but it's not 95-year-olds. Didn't have a lot of 95-year-olds in this, this time in, in, uh, in, in, in ancient history. But older women, and then he says likewise, meaning, and I love this, there is a uniform um, behavioral expectation of God's people. It's not like men are allowed to be and women are not allowed to be, or women are not allowed to be and men are allowed to be. It's, 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 it's none of that stuff. I, I, I Actually, one of the things that I've always found interesting um, whenever I teach on the idea of eldership, and I'm teaching a biblical idea about 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 male eldership, okay, I think it's something I believe the Bible actually teaches, and I'll hear someone actually say something like, "Well, because you know, when when women get into leadership, they become bossy and they do this," and I kind of always laugh, and I'm like, "Well, actually, the attributes that you just said are not allowed by any gender." <laughs> So you seem to say it like somehow, like, well, you know, like women, they'll get bossy, like like men can't be bossy. So I, I would really be careful. Notice the number of times. I, I think we make, there are distinctions. Truly, there are distinctions, biblically. And I, and I think every, every, in every way, there are distinctions. But I, notice what he says here. Older women, likewise, and he gives a very similar list. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. The word there for reverent has the picture of walking in to a, uh, a place of worship. And having like a sense like, oh wow, there's something big that's happening. So a reverence in behavior, not slanderous or slaves too much wine, which, by the way, was a problem that existed back then for a lot of different people. Um, but uh, and if you have not even read through history, you should see major times in history, the, the weight of managing a home is absolutely overwhelming at times. I remember going to the pharmacy, uh, the, the kind of like the old time pharmacy in Guthrie, 
How many of you have been there? They have an old, you walk down the streets of Guthrie. How many of you have been there? Any of you been there? Okay, it's, a, it's kind of an amazing place. My wife and I went there with our in-laws when, they, when, when we first moved here. And I'm looking at all these remedies for women back in like the ni- 1910, 19, have you seen these things? And then like you look on the ingredients, prime ingredient, cocaine. I'm not kidding. And then you go back and you look at the ads. Feeling the daily blues? <laughs> you know, take a swig of this. And you look at it, and, and some of these things are like 25, 30% cocaine. Like, it's, it's, it's sad. So Paul says, hey, listen, like, it's not saying women drink more than men. No, he's got other examples where he says, don't let men be addicted to wine. Here's what he says. Not slanderous or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, just like Titus is to teach what is good. And to train, and the word there actually just means to remind. So sometimes we get into this, this tra- oh, yeah, I need to train, like I need to have a scheduled time, and I need to have a scheduled place. No, the word there actually is just to remind. I love this. Older women remind younger women to love their husbands and children. And for those of you that have younger children, okay, and husbands, you know that sometimes you need to be reminded, Right? That's not that crazy. You might even say, well, whoever needs to be reminded to love their wives and children? Remind, or to, to love their husbands, or whatever it is. Yeah, I do. Because here's what, here's what happens. Um, it's, it's, it's so easy for me to believe that I'm actually loving Andrea, but in the end, it's, it's still always about me. And everything gravitates. I am like the black hole of existence in my life. And everything gets sucked towards Jim. And love means there's a different center. Love foregoes. And, and what do we do? To describe in here for women, older women, remind younger women that they need to love their husbands and their children to be self-controlled, which we already see being described here. And that word for self-controlled actually goes back to the same word. It's actually linked to the word to train or to remind. It's actually the, it's kind of a similar idea. To be self-controlled, to be pure, Busy at home. Now, now, by the way, just for the record here, uh, they wouldn't have had any kind of an understanding of women in the workplace or not working at home or not at home. We kind of read that into it, right? So that's a, if you even want to have that argument about whether or not a woman could work outside the home, you've got a whole lot of questions. I, I read a great book by Mary Farrar written years ago called Choices. And she was describing that one of the biggest reasons why women, quote unquote, left the home to work in another place was because men did. And I'll never forget her statement. Men left the home long before women ever did. And I'm, I'm reading this and I'm going, what are you talking about? No, men always left the home. And no, so they didn't actually. The primary place that most people worked for most of human history was where? The home was the primary place. And it wasn't until the Industrial Revolution, not that people didn't work outside the home, but it wasn't until the Industrial Revolution where that began to happen. So what he is describing here has absolutely nothing to do with the modern convention, Industrial Revolution, whether or not a woman can. That's not what what he's describing here. And the word there for work at home literally means to be busy at home, um, which is, 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 is not a you need to be stuck in this location. It's almost assumed culturally that this is going to be the location. And what he's actually challenging older women to teach younger women to do is to thrive in that, to do well there. Read Proverbs 31. 
The Proverbs 31 woman is the woman who's in the business place and who's managing the home well. And it's a great joy to her husband and a great joy to her children because why? Because boy, she just, man, she just is good at this. And so that's what he is describing here. This is what I what what Older women should tell younger women to be kind and submissive. You've got a couple of other texts that describe this, submissive to their own husbands. Now, I want to explain that a little bit. It means exactly what it says. I'm not going to try to, well, let me explain, out, let me get my way out of that difficult word. No, it means exactly what it says. But let me put it in its context and notice what it says afterwards. So that, so you have the reason why. Why are all of these things important, particularly submissive to their husbands, so that the word of God may not be reviled, so that the word of God may not be considered like bad. So let's put it back in its first century context, okay? Paul would come to a city and he would share the gospel, would share the good news. And the early church, um, the, the, the first to actually find faith, in many cases, were women. They were some of the most ready and the most responsive to the gospel and to the message of the gospel. So imagine what happens when a new guy comes to town preaching a whole new way to organize your world and your life and your wife comes home and says, hey, guess what? <laughs> Everything is changing. I just There was this guy preaching down in the marketplace. His name was Paul. He's from a totally different place. And he's telling us about this Jesus, and I now love Jesus. See where this is going? And now I need to live my entire life devoted to Jesus above all things. Like even over you, honey. But this is a good thing for us. Can you imagine? What would the husband say? Okay, what? I mean, honestly, you try it. You go home after tonight and go, hey, Jim's totally changed our lives, and now I'm totally devoted. I mean, you just try to to do that, people think you're crazy. Honestly, one of the most interesting things of the number of times, um, Paul can probably proclaim this easily in, in youth ministry, the number of times when, when young people begin very passionate and um, obedient desires to follow Jesus, you know who the greatest obstacle usually is? Mom and dad. And, I, and not the mom and dad, the mom and dad who are going to church. The mom and dad who bring them to church also want them to dial it back and not take it so seriously. Okay, Paul, is that not true? Happens all the time. So put this in its context. So Paul now has a group of Cretan women who are now devoted to Jesus greater than to their husbands. What is that going to look like? Imagine if they come home and say, I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to, I don't have to follow you. You're a, you're a loser. You're an idiot. You're a terrible person. And you know what? I got a new savior. And I don't want any part of this. What happens to the message of the gospel in that context? You go to your boss on, on, on uh, or tomorrow, Thursday. You go to your boss tomorrow and say, hey, you're a Christian. And then start berating them and telling them that they're losers and you don't have to follow them and you can do whatever you want because you're not really my boss anymore. See how that goes. Like, see how that goes for you. And then see, and at the very end of this tirade that you go off of, say, would you like to follow him too? Do that. <laughs> would you like to follow him too? Like, so understand what's at stake. And here's, here's the beauty, I think, of the gospel. 
This isn't Paul and Silas and, and uh, you know, some other people in Jerusalem going, okay, how can we market this? Okay, well, listen, probably women are going to take this first, and so let's make sure, hey, tell you what, like submission's a really bad thing, but I think we could really get them to buy it if we trick them in this. It's none of that. It's a biblical mandate that we are submissive. It's a cultural mandate that we're not, but it's a biblical mandate that we are. Paul says in Ephesians 2, or sorry, Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 21, submit submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Next verse, wives submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. It's describing this, submit to you. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the cultural, Jim's way more important than that. I don't have to listen to you. You're not the boss of me. Sound like a five-year-old. That's the problem. And Paul realizes, wow, if these wives decide to take this new freedom that they have in Christ and use it for their own... And by the way, is it, would that not be tempting? Would that not be tempting? And Paul's going, okay, we cannot do that. Number one, it does not line up with the gospel. And number two, it's just going to get them to revile the word of God. And that's, I think, where that is ultimately coming from. Sometimes we remove that from its context and we just try to place it into a modern day context. And I'm saying, you know, it's a little bit different. Paul knows what's going on here, and so he offers this advice. Verse 6, likewise urge the younger men to be self-controlled. That's all he really says about that. Now he's going to get on Timothy's back, or Titus's back, most of all. Show yourself, so this is now Titus, in all respects to be a model of good works. See, one of the, one of the complaints that I have when I hear preachers love to talk about how, you know, you've got faith and works and faith and works and, and it's really not about works, it's really about faith, it's not about what we do and it's, it really has nothing to do with what we do. The biggest problem with that is that is not true. Now hear me, we are saved by grace through faith. Right? Not of anything that we do. So that's, that is true. But finish reading that section in Ephesians where you started and it says, which he created in advance for us to do these good works. So the Bible holds these things together. The Bible actually sees that it's not these good works that save us. It is we are now saved by the grace of God. We are now set free from having to live my life centered around Jim, selfishly, manipulatively, exploitively. I don't have to do that anymore. I'm now free. From that, to do what? To do good works. Not so that God might love me, so that Jesus might die for me. No, that has already happened, actually. But as a natural result of or from. And that's why it never really works with children or with grown-ups to say, you need to be good, you need to be good, you need to be good, you need to be good. No, it's, do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? And as I begin to describe myself as a redeemed child of God who's incredibly broken and yet still loved, who's incredibly selfish and yet still loved, who's incredibly and yet still, and, and what the Bible says is that it is that fact when we reflect on the cross of Christ and on the grace of God, it is that that brings us to repentance. And if you know what I'm talking about, then you understand grace. If you don't know what I'm talking about when I say that, if you don't know what it is like to reflect on the grace of God and it, it move your heart to repentance, 
then you need to, I, I, the only thing I can do, I can't, I can't scold you, I can't yell at you, I can't, I can't threaten you. All I can do is talk about Jesus some more. He's the one that then moves our hearts. So show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your sayings, same word again, and in your sayings show integrity, which is again that word for soundness. It's just like about healthy and sound, healthy and sound all through this chapter. Show integrity and dignity, the same thing that he wants the elder men to see. And sound speech that cannot be condemned. Like Timothy, or Titus, keep saying Timothy. Titus, I want you to resemble what these older men are going to look like. And you're going to look a lot like the older women. And they're going to look like the younger women. You're all going to look a lot like Jesus, essentially is what he's saying. Now why does he want Titus to live this way? Look at this. So that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. This is what he's saying. This is, this is what I, I wish today our church would take more seriously. Um, the number of times, just not all the time, but the number of times where I have to try to explain to someone who is having a real difficult time with Jesus because, well, I know somebody who, and I, and, and by the way, they're using that as an excuse. I don't think that's the full reason, by the way. So I never buy. I'm kind of like the, uh, the house of pastors. I don't really buy what people are selling. Why? Because I believe everybody lies. I also believe that we don't fully understand the depth of the rebellion in our own hearts. Okay? But what they're saying, although which is not the total reason why they are having a hard time believing, still doesn't make it okay that the fact that you and I maybe aren't modeling the Christian life with self-control and dignity and with respect and with reverence that we can and that we should. And what he's actually saying is here, like Titus, what I want you to do is I want you to live this way so that when the time comes and they make accusations, I just want to know what are they going to say about you? Are they going to say you're a hothead? Are they going to say you're selfish? Are they going to say like that you will not live? What are they going to say about you, Titus? And you want them to be able to say nothing, nothing at all. That's what you want. He continues on, verse 9, kind of in this household section. Bond servants, another word for that, I didn't write it in here, but the other kind of simple word for that is slave. Now, one of the reasons why I kind of like the word bond servant sometimes, and I, I need to put all this together to kind of share it with you. Um, the concept of slavery that probably every single one of us have, except for those of us that maybe have studied what it was like in the first century, is incredibly different than American slavery in the 17 and 1800s. Like incredibly different, okay? And so when the Apostle Paul is describing it, um, I mean, there is still a, a sense of, um, of, of owner and, and, and slave. So there is, a, there is that aspect of it. But there, it, it's not race-related like we would have it here. So it's not, it's not based on the color of skin. That's actually a more recent phenomenon, Okay, in human history. Um, so it's not, it's not race related. It usually isn't in, in the Roman world. It's not for life. So a lot of young people, it would almost, a lot of it sounds a little bit like this. Um, I'm kind of 18 years old and I don't want to have to starve to death. So I find a good man like Tom and Wilma and I say, hey, listen, I'd like to, the word I would use, it sounds so strange in our vocabulary, I'd like to be your slave. I'd like to basically like live in your home and um, have an opportunity to serve you and I want to learn what you do, Tom. And 
Um, I'll do this for five years, and this will kind of be my pay. This is what you'll do for me. And after that five years, which I've, and I, it's, I would agree for a long period of time, after that, then I'm free to go. So that's kind of what the slavery was like. Now, by the way, they, they definitely allowed Tom to do things to me, i.e. beat me if I didn't work hard enough. So to try to make it out like it had all the same labor laws that we have in 2017 is not true. Okay? So it, it is. It's rough. But it's not the same kind of shackled, bought on a, on a, on a market, I have you forever, and I'm going to beat you to death if I feel like it. Actually, no, no, no. The, 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 the relationship between slave and master were much different, but... But still, it's a complicated thing. Now, if it's true in all of these marital situations, now all of a sudden that you're free in Christ, imagine telling a bondservant, hey guys, you're free in Christ. Woo! So I don't have to work out the next three years? That'd be sweet. Because I promised Tom that I would be here for five. And that's a contract, right? It's a legally binding contract. If I leave before then, I'm a runaway slave, punishable by death within the Roman, within the Roman uh, legal system. But now I'm free. That's why I realized like the great story, the book of Philemon between Philemon and Onesimus is this runaway slave that Paul finds. And Paul goes, actually, I know your owner. <laughs> I'm going to send you back. With the, but by the way, you probably need to take this letter because if not, it could get ugly for you. And he sends him back. He says, hey, but the good news is you don't, you don't, have, a, you don't have a servant back. You have a brother. And it's a beautiful letter if you've not read it. So here's what he says, to bond servants. So maybe that word is good because we hear the word slaves and we just, we just end up where, you know, it's 1782 and we're in South Carolina and people are coming off a ship from, from West Africa and it's a much different, much different picture. So bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. Why? Because you're not to be, this is a biblical idea, you're like you're not to be argumentative. This is all through the pastoral epistles. Submissive to their masters in everything, they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, right, not stealing, because sometimes these slaves would actually be over a lot. Think of Joseph in Egypt, right? Joseph was a slave, but was over a lot. They lived kind of well. And, and, and by the way, I don't know if you guys have heard of this. this might, you might just go, I've never even heard of this, but sometimes people who are put over other people's things However, the word is like I think it's embezzle, or they take or they steal. I don't know if you've heard about this, but it would it would happen back then. And so, what is Paul saying? Like, we can't do that. And it's amazing how much, especially when we're in difficult circumstances, we want to justify some of our behavior, right? Like, well, I've worked hard. I'm going to take this. And a lot of slaves were known to pilfer or to steal from their masters. Paul says, no, 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 we don't, we don't do that, not pilfering, but showing good faith. And then notice third time now, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. I love that phrase. So what are they basically saying? By all of these good works, now all of a sudden your master who is looking at you, who may not even be treating you the best, all of a sudden they say, but you are an amazing man. You are an amazing bondservant. And I trust you with everything. And I think that's why, especially the stories of like Joseph and others in the Old Testament that went through some incredible difficulties and how they, how they, were, um, how they were blessed is a sign of the way that God's, uh, God's way 
works so well in the world. Not all the time, hear me. It's more proverbial than it is, hey, well, I worked hard and my boss didn't do that for me. Okay. Um, and by the way, the reason why Paul says this, wives about it, to, to wives, hey, I want you to act like this. And, and, and bond service, I want you to act like this. And young men, I want you to act like this. Is that, hey, by the way, even if you get mistreated, who is always watching us? God is. Are you okay with him? This is a great question to ask. And it's not easy. It's not easy to just say yes. So if you look at me and just go yes, I, I'm going to tell you, no, no, no. Think about it a little more. Are you okay with being mistreated, misunderstood in this life for an extended period of time and God in the end rewarding you? It's hard, it's hard to say. But the answer, as Paul's saying, is but that is true. He ends with this paragraph, beginning in verse 11. For, so all of that stuff before, right? Literally, that entire previous section. All of how we should act, and notice how continuous it is. Old men, sound, healthy, vibrant faith. Women, sound, healthy, vibrant faith. Slaves, Titus, sound, healthy, vibrant faith. All very similar uh, descriptions of what it looks like. Why? And he's going to talk about two appearings. Appearing number one, for the grace of God has appeared. I believe there he is describing the incarnation, the coming of Jesus Christ. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now it's interesting that that sentence, if you read that, if you just read it the way it is, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. There are some people that would then say, by just reading that one sentence, who's saved? All people. All people. But then I love how, if you can see where it continues on, who is he talking about? Who are all the people? By the way, there is, a, there is something in, 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 the, in the Greek language, maybe in English as well. I'm actually, sadly enough, I know, I know Greek better than I know English most of the time. It's known as the distributive, it's a distributive act. That, I, that word all, um, is when, when you interpret it grammatically in the distributive, it means this. That what it is describing, the way it is using the word all, it means without distinction. It's distributed evenly. So it's not trying to be all-encompassing, but it's trying to describe a lack of distinction in terms of how it works. And you'll notice how the rest of the sentence continues. The NIV for verse 12 actually has the word, actually it kind of, it's two words. It teaches is what the NIV says. But actually it's not, it's not a finite verb. It's actually a participle. You guys, I don't know if you guys like hate me using grammatical things, but it's a participle, which means it actually is better to be used the word teaching or, or, or uh, here it has training. So what is this? The appearing, or actually more than that, the grace of God is training us. I love that idea. It is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a self-controlled life upright and godly lives in this present age. That's what grace does. This grace which has appeared to us in Christ, which has now saved us, what does it do? It trains us in all the things that, that Paul was telling Titus to teach the people with. See, how many times when you think of the word grace do you just think of, oh yeah, I don't have to go to hell. It's a gift. It's unmerited favor. You just kind of leave it at that. I, I, I think if we would spend more time not just glibly throwing around the word grace, but truly think about the full extent of God's grace to us. His common grace, his salvation grace, 
It's, it's all over the place. And what does it do? It trains us. Reflecting on God's grace, living in God's grace, it trains us. So when I'm, I'm, I'm mad and I don't want to forgive my wife, I think of grace. And as I think of that grace and I think about that grace that I have received and as I think about the fact that I didn't deserve it and that I was an enemy of God and the more that I reflect on the way he treated me, it's really difficult, if I'm gonna be honest with you, it's really difficult at that moment as I'm thinking about that to decide this grudge is worth it. It's like impossible. So someone slanders me. And I, you know what? I, I want my pound of flesh. And then I what? I reflect on the grace of God. I reflect on what God has done for me. I reflect on the fact that, that I am a blasphemer, that I am a slanderer. I reflect on those things, and all of a sudden the pound of flesh doesn't seem worth it. Does that make sense? So the grace of God, which has appeared, trains us to renounce all of these things. And then verse 13, it continues on. Waiting for our blessed hope. Notice the number of us's and ours. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing, so this is the second one. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So one is the incarnation. The second one is the parousia, or the second coming of Jesus who then gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people. This is how you know that this whole section is not talking about the whole world, it's talking about us. To purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. See, this is the reason why it is good for us to spur one another on to good works to not grow weary in doing good, as the, as the Bible teaches. Why? Because we reflect more and more and more on two comings. This is what's interesting. On the great two appearings. You need to reflect more on the fact that Jesus came to die for you, and he is coming back for you. And if you just had that as a constant um, part of you thinking through the struggles. Think about it. Any struggle, any, any difficulty that you're having, any issue that you're being faced with. Look, can we just spend a few moments talking about what God came, what God did when he came for you and the fact that he is coming again. And, and then afterward I'm talking about that, then I want you to tell me your story again. And by the way, you can gladly do the same to me. Okay, Jim, listen, I know it's scary or I know you're sad or I know you're whatever. So let's talk about it. First coming, okay, let's talk about what he did for us. Okay, that's great. His second coming, let's talk about where this is all gonna go. Okay, now tell me your story again. And, and truly, not to just go, fine, I won't have a problem. But to find in the gospel, to find in the coming, the establishment of the kingdom, the ultimate re perfect establishment of the kingdom to find our peace there, to find our ability to forgive there, to find our lack of desire for revenge in that. That's what it means to be Christian. He ends with this, declare, it's the same word, say, la leo. <laughs> it's been translated all these different words, but it's the same one, but you can just get a sense it's big here. Declare these things and Encourage is the word, parakaleo, but it's a little bit stronger, so it's like exhort. But it literally is the word for encourage. Declare these things, encourage and rebuke. That word rebuke, by the way, 
is the word that is used in Matthew 18, 15. Um, I don't think I knew this until today, actually. I went back and I looked because it says in, in uh, even in the ESV, it says in Matthew 15, or Matthew 18, verse 15, that if a brother has sinned against you, go to him. And what it says is, show him his fault. That's what, they, that's what the ESV says, which I usually love the translation. But it's not all these different Greek words. It's just one Greek word, and it's the word for rebuke. If your brother has sinned against you, go to him and rebuke him. John 3, verse 20, actually says this, that people who live in darkness love the darkness because the light, and the, the, you, the way you probably know this, it exposes them, but you know the word? It rebukes them. The light by itself rebukes them. I thought that was interesting. And then Ephesians 5.11 kind of has that same idea. That, that, that this, is what the good, this is what health does. Have you ever been around somebody that looks healthier than you and then you just feel like bad? Anybody? I remember one, one, one summer when Mackenzie and, and Max were home and they were lifting weights. Matthew was, I think he was still gone at the time. And they loved to walk around the house shirtless. Loved it. So they're walking around the house, these guys, and they're lifting weights all the time. And I just remember going, I so don't like you boys. Because looking at them, you know, I'm having like my fourth cheeseburger or something. I'm looking at them. They, they just reminded me of what I once was, but now I'm not. Just hate, don't you hate it? Don't you just get frustrated? It's like, go put a shirt on and make it extra large, not one of those tight ones. I don't need to see this anymore. Isn't it amazing how when we see health, those of us who are unhealthy to some degree, we begin to resent it. We begin to feel a little exposed, don't we? Like if that's true with our physical appearance, it's also true when it comes to the things that matter most. I, I think one of the reasons why we have this don't ask, don't tell, don't judge me is because we just don't like this, but Paul does not give Titus that option. What does he say? Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. The word just literally means like with a command. With a command. And let no one disregard you. The word for disregard is a hapoxagomena. It means, um, it means there are certain people that have a, an attitude. It, it's like this: to 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 be disregarded means to be they they set themselves up and they can just ugh dismissive. That's what the word means. It's a really kind of an interesting word. It just means so they they set them and he and here's what's interesting. You know what it says? Don't let them do that to you. So I looked in like all these commentaries, I could not find one that even explained that part of the verse. Couldn't find one. Why? Because it's hard to explain. How do I not let, how do I not let you look down on me? How do I not let you dismiss me? How do I do that? How do I, do I yell at you? Like do I, do I scream at you? Do I threaten you? How do I do that? And you know how you do that? By living this way. That's how you do it. The only way you can do it where they can't, now they may verbally dismiss you, but when they walk away, guess what? It doesn't let go. Because they know. Because they know. And more important than they know, who knows? He knows. Let's pray. God, thank you for the reminder of this text and thank you for the way that it has spoken to me. 
I pray, Father, that the description of this, which is in such beautiful unison with the rest of your word, may we live like this. May we be about good works, Father, not somehow to arm twist your love, but as a very natural and healthy response to the grace that we find in Christ as we wait for Christ. And so God, I pray as we leave here, we would truly exhort and encourage and rebuke one another to live this way. May we do so by your strength and for your purposes. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Next week, we're gonna be jumping into chapter three.